have a very simple rule speaking to any audience for the first time. You'll hear my accent is South African. You will not understand certain words and you'll leave here thinking that I have said something completely weird and you won't know what I'm talking about. So please, if you don't understand something, I can see already there's some confused looks here. <laughs> so, um, with me, bear with me. What is the reason for that? Do you not like me already? <laughs> uh, during the summer, ooh, hello. That's a little scary. During the summer last year, we took the high school youth group here, which at that stage was called Quest, it's now called Gravity. We took them to uh, the Hayden Rec Center Park what we commonly call the gazebo green, which is uh, just down the road where we had Summerfest this year. And we, take the, we took different events and um, we spent time there, usually kind of as the sunset was when we were there. And it was the most amazing thing. We had run all sorts of events there, kickball, dodgeball, uh, ultimate frisbee, and those guys here who play ultimate on Tuesdays will know what I'm about to say. But as the sun sets you begin to notice that everybody at that gazebo green begins to engage in some sort of crazy new dance. Dance, as you say. Uh, and they do this crazy sort of jerky body movement thing. And you know what it's like. It's, it's this sort of movement. And while you're talking to people, all they're doing is doing this the whole time. And the more the sun sets and the darker it gets, the more jerky the movements become. Last year I was there, and some of you know Nora Cavanaugh, she's my admin assistant here on staff. We were standing talking to some kids, and I was trying to run a devotion while every, all the kids were doing that sort of jerky movement. Uh, and uh, the next day when we kind of had our weekly meeting, uh, she reported that she had 39 mosquito bites just on her arms. I had about seven or eight, so I was thankful I was standing next to her because they all went to her. <laughs> but <laughs> it did make me wonder, why on earth did God put the mosquito on the ark? <laughs> why? And I think some of you have said that, except you've changed animal. Like some of you may have said, why did God put the spider on the ark? Uh, if you have anything like my mother's fear of spiders, uh, you don't think God did a good thing there. Or why on earth did snakes get on the ark? Or, uh, you know, some other weird animals, the duck-billed platypus, who knows why they'd ever made it onto the ark. But we've all sort of asked that. And I think that view identifies one sort of approach when we come to the chapters that you guys have been reading the last uh, week. These chapters 6 through 10 about Noah and the flood and the surrounding uh, chapters about what happened just after. It's kind of this humorous speculation view of, the, of these accounts. It's kind of funny, ha-ha, great material for comedians around the world, both Christian and non-Christian. They use the, the flood and the ark as, as a great way to spread comedy. But there's a second approach which is identified in really two different types of people. Both are rigorous. There's those who rigorously defend the ark and the flood and these accounts as being absolutely true, 100%. It happened as it was written there, and as I think it was written there, that's how it happened, and they will slate anybody who opposes them. And then you get those who rigorously deny anything in there that's true. I'm hoping that through the course of tonight we can discover a little bit of a, of a different approach. Uh, kind of an approach to respond. And as I thought through what to share with you guys, there's a lot of information from these four chapters. Uh, enough information uh, to keep people in their lifelong journey going and going and searching and discovering. 
We're not going to cover all of that tonight because I don't think you guys want to spend the rest of your lives sitting here. Uh, you want to do other things. So uh, as I sat and listened and, and I prepared, two things stuck out for me, and one of them is what I want to focus on tonight. And that is this picture of, of the God we see in these four or five chapters as we look at them and, and what sort of God emerges from this uh, chapter of Genesis. Now, I feel a little weird because I'm speaking in between a doctor and a reverend. I'm neither. So that's a little scary to try and contemplate that. So I would allow you to subject everything I say to their intelligence. And uh, if we contradict on any point of view, you can ask me questions, but go with what they say. Okay? It's usually a safer version. They've studied a little bit more than me if they does. Uh, I believe Carol Kaminsky wrote her paper on Genesis. Is that correct? I was looking at her papers, and it, it was pretty, pretty good. It was convincing. <laughs> so, complicated task we're trying to embark on tonight, and I'm just going to read it to you so you can get a feel for it. We're going to embark on this immensely complicated task of looking into the chapters of Genesis. They talk about Noah and the flood and the immediate accounts following the emergence from the ark. And we are faced with looking at the evidence from all facts of study, scientific, biblical, archaeological, and historical, and trying to make sense of it for ourselves. You with me? Okay. We're not going to do that. Okay? We're going to look at a little simpler picture. I would welcome you to, if you have questions, uh, kind of write them down, hold them off, uh, depending on how much time we have at the end, because I definitely do not like talking for 45 minutes. Uh, I would uh, welcome your questions on those sort of things. But as I looked at this sort of passage... It came to that instead of those two different approaches, this humorous accounting of what the ark and the flood is about and this uh, rigorous defending or denying of the, the biblical accounts, let's rather look at something different and this view that the passages that were given, those five chapters, are important to us and valuable to us for a very simple reason. They are invaluable to us because they help us in our life and faith. We learn a lot from those five chapters as we, uh, and we can take from them and change our lives, change our faith, and grow in our life and faith. Genesis is a book about beginnings, and the whole thing is about origins and growth through that process. And so this is just another step in teaching people about the origins. Uh, and as uh, the whole theme says, it's about um, human generations. So I think as we look at those five chapters, three important lessons emerge. Now I'm going to run through the first two pretty quickly, because I really want to focus on the last one. The three, re three lessons that we learn, or uh, three reasons why Noah and the flood account is important, uh, simply, there are historical lessons that we can learn from this chapter. There are, pardon me, there are practical lessons we can learn from uh, these chapters. And there are also theological lessons, and I want to focus more on the theological lessons a bit later on. But let's have a look quickly at some of those historical lessons. Uh, again, I'm just going to go through this very quickly. Uh, firstly, these chapters are written to ground the nation of Israel around the story of the Lord's working with the, that nation and bringing them authenticity as a nation, validation as a, as a nation, and continuity as a nation. They're able to look back into their past and say, that's where we began, that's what uh, uh, came for us. And just so you know, everything I'm going to give you, there's some notes outside, uh, handouts of exactly this PowerPoint uh, just in the bullet form, so you feel free to pick that up. Uh, but there is this uh, grounding of a nation, because remember it's written uh, later on than we believe. Some uh, credit this to Moses, but uh, that's become uh, a little bit of a debate lately uh, whether Moses actually wrote this or not. But 
let's just go with it. Let's say Moses wrote it or somebody who was very influential in the nation of Israel and they wanted to ground the nation of Israel in what um, the story of the Lord's working with them. But it also provides something more. It provides a link from Adam to Abraham. These five chapters take the reader from Adam and the sin that, and, and, and all of that that happened there quickly through to Abraham in a very short account. Uh, and we see that in Genesis 5 and, and Genesis 10. And it also teaches the nations about the making of covenants from God's perspective. This is very important, which we'll look at under the theology side, that God presents covenants in, uh, uh, through the writers of Genesis and he allows people to get an understanding of what the covenant is from his point of view. Because in that day and age, covenants were made left, right, and center, and he wanted to give the nation of Israel a view of what covenants are and what they are and what they mean to him. And you see that covenant coming out in Genesis 9. Uh, it also just helps to deal with a cataclysmic disaster uh, that was so big and so wide that it left an imprint on the nations in that area. Now, there's a lot of debate over the flood, and you may have read some of that. Was it global? Was it local? Was it regional? Was it global and local? Uh, we won't get into all of that, but there is uh, some uh, belief that it was big enough and wide enough and such a disaster that it impacted the people there. And it impacted not just Jewish sources, it impacted non-Jewish sources. In fact, an earlier accounting of the Genesis flood account comes from the Babylonian book. Uh, am I still fading in and out? Sometimes? Would you rather I use a handheld? You guys tell me. I mean, if it, if it irritates you, let's, uh, let's drop the, the wireless. Uh, but this disaster was huge. It was cataclysmic. And so it left a, it left a, a note in people's minds. And this gener and writing back, being close enough to that disaster, they needed to account for that in some way and use it as an opportunity to present more stuff and more things about God. But it does more than that. Very specific things. It provides historical and divine support for capital punishment. Now, I don't know where you stand on capital punishment, and you're welcome to come and ask me where I stand on capital punishment, but people go to this passage and say, here's where capital punishment get some le legitimacy and where there's some historical and divine support for it, especially for the nation of Israel in terms of putting to death those who kill others. And then uh, one final historical lesson that we do get. It provides historical legitimacy and current, the ancient current, not our current, ancient current division between Canaan and Israel. At some point, somebody must have asked, why do we hate those Canaanites? And why do they hate us? And they were able to go back to this account and say, here's a reason for it. And obviously the Ishmael and uh, Isaac story as well lend support to that as well. Uh, but very clear, just jumps out at the text as you read through chapter 9, that there's some weird account and then just out of the blue, the writer says, well, God's going to curse Canaan because of what Ham does. And Ham is just uh, his father. So it's a weird sort of thing, but there's an historical lesson there for us to look at. But they're practical lessons as well. Uh, we learn just a couple of practical lessons. One, that Noah is a man who is living in a world that is evil, that is cor uh, corrupt, and that is violent. And we see that repeated over and over through Genesis 6 as, as kind of a legitimacy of why the flood came. So a corrupt world, uh, a violent world, and an evil world. 
it's practical for us today because I think a lot of people today feel like we're living in a world that is corrupt, feel like we're living in a world that is filled with evil, feel like we're living in a world that is full of violence. Uh, just looking at the, the televisions. One of the reasons Ingrid and my, wa- my wife, Ingrid, and I left South Africa, I just got tired of seeing dead bodies on television. I just did. Uh, we were, we, it was a regular occurrence. At least we would be sitting watching the, the, the TV, the local news and the national news, and they would report, oh, this one got killed, there, there was this murder, and they would show the bodies. I just got tired of that. And then the real clincher for me was watching a man die a hundred yards from my house who had been stabbed to death with what they call pangas, that is machetes, I think is the equivalent here. And I just went, you know, I'm done. I do not need to live in a country that does that. And uh, that began a, a motivation in me to move out. Ingrid's motivations were slightly different. She has family here, so she wanted to come see her family. But that was the motivation for me. And I don't know about you, but as you look at your world and you look at the society in which you live, those three words tend to stand out. Evil, corrupt, violent. And so there's a practical lesson for us that Noah teaches how we can live in that sort of world. How we can survive, not only survive, but thrive in that sort of world. And uh, here's a little bit about what he teaches us. He teaches us how to listen for God's voice. He heard God's voice. Now, was it audible or not? We don't know, but it's recorded that God spoke to him and he listened. And so he followed what, uh, what God had to say. And we see in Genesis 6, 8 through 9 and 13 that Abraham was, uh, Abraham, Noah was a man attuned to God's voice and God's leading. Now I find it interesting to note that he is called a blameless and righteous man. Under what basis? Abraham hadn't arrived yet. The blessing of Israel hadn't arrived yet, but he was known as a man who walked with God. And that really leads to uh, kind of how that was visible to us, is that he obeyed God's commands. I've got um, your workbook here. How many of you know your memory verses from this week? Oh, everybody ducks and runs. (laughs) Does anybody know what their memory verse was for last Friday? And Monday. I'll give you a clue. They kind of say the same thing. Anybody know? Genesis 6.22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And then on Monday, apparently you learnt, uh, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Genesis 7 verse 5. Noah did everything that God commanded him to do. It's a practical lesson for us. Would you describe your life that way? Does your life carry that little epitaph? I do everything that the Lord commands me to. Mine definitely does not. God and I engage in a lot of debates over what I should do and what I shouldn't do. Uh, Our current debate, I believe, is uh, over television. Uh, How much television I watch and how much is telling me I shouldn't watch. And so it's an ongoing debate. Uh, So in our family, we kind of have adopted a particular night where we don't turn the television on. I've noticed something about myself on those nights. I'm a little bit more aggressive and frustrated and irritated. I'm kind of like a cocaine addict who isn't getting his fix. Something tells me God's going to push it a little further and say, you know, maybe two nights and three nights and four nights. I'm dreading those days, but they might be coming. Uh, 
So we learn something about obeying God's commands. And He doesn't need to speak audibly to us for us to get what He's saying. We sometimes make it so complicated that uh, where do I find God? Where do I find His will? Where do I find what He wants me to do? And there are certain things that are very clear. Very clear. Now, if I was talking to a youth audience, I'd hit the drum of sex before marriage and addiction and peer pressure and that sort of stuff. But you guys know where you face. And those of you in work, the pressure, the rat race, the getting ahead and the backstabbing. Is that what God is commanding you to do or is He teaching us a different way of living? And there are many other examples that you could draw for yourself. But He teaches us, Noah teaches us how to obey God's commands. He also teaches us how to witness to those we meet. Later on in 2 Peter, it talks about him being a preacher of righteousness. Now, Sunday school, and they took preacher of righteousness and Moses, uh, Moses, getting them all mixed up tonight, Noah building the ark, and put the two together and said, oh, he must have gone and persuaded everybody around him to get in the ark with him. No, because Noah obeyed God's commands and God was very clear to him. He said, you and seven others will go into the ark. Nobody else. So he must have been a preacher of righteousness in a different way. People knew that he was a man who walked with God by what he did, by what was seen. And so he teaches us how to witness to others, sometimes by speaking, but sometimes without saying anything. Now, I want you to think about the people in your life who you consider to be mature Christians. Why do you consider them mature? What is it about them that you say is something that attracts you to them and that they are more advanced or further along the Christian walk than you are? I would hazard a guess that in 99% of the cases, it's because of the way they live their lives. It's visible that God is in their lives. It's visible in how they pray. It's visible in, in the decisions they make. It's visible in the, in the things they choose to do and the things they choose not to do. As you think about those people, no one thing. Others are looking at you in the same way. You actually are further along the road than the next generation or other people in this room. And they look to you as an example. And so the way you obey God's commands, the way you, you listen for God's voice, helps to witness to others. Noah also teaches us how to trust God. It must have been a little scary to get into an ark and see the door close and then hear the water come. Whether it was regional, global, whatever, to hear that water come and that boat that you've made, which boat is a little bit of, a, of an exaggeration of what it really was. Barge would be a better term. No rudder, no way to steer it, just this box that floats. And you've got your family in there and a whole lot of animals. <laughs> I've always wondered what Noah did with all the excess that came from feeding those animals. I just it made me wonder. Anyway, <laughs> it's actually one of the scientific reasons why people go, is that really possible? Uh, in fact, uh, in this book that I have here, which I, I might use if there's a few questions scientifically, it actually gives how much urine they might have produced. You can imagine my study time. What? What relevance does that have to us? So that's why I chose not to talk about the scientific side of things. Uh, but he taught us to trust God. You're afloat in a world you cannot see anything other than water. 
enduring something that you cannot steer. You've got to trust God. Noah also teaches us to worship God for who he is. We get to worship God for the type of person he is. And these five chapters teach us who that God is. And so we're going to look at that. Uh, And that comes under these theological lessons about life and faith that we learn from these five chapters. Well, the first theological lesson, obviously, the reason for the flood, evil, the corrupt, is sin. And we learn from this chapter, because remember, Genesis is all about origins. So we learn who created the world, God. We learn what happened when uh, the fall came and, and sin came into the world. We then learn how sin spreads, the first murder, the first breakup, uh, and it spreads further and further. And now we begin to see just how persistent this thing called sin is. God wiped out everybody on the planet. Okay, at least that's what some believe. And Noah is the one left, this righteous, blameless man for the people of his time. And his kids, they come out, and the fir- one of the first things they do, Noah gets drunk. His son looks at him in a weird way, and a lot of people believe that the, w- he, the way he looked at him implied either disrespect to him as his father, uh, even with an element of lust that his wife, Noah's wife, might have been lying there naked as well. But there's an essence that sin just won't go away. Not only is it persistent, but it's pervasive. It's just everywhere. You just can't get rid of it. Noah has it. Ham has it. Shem and Japheth, I think is how you say their names, they definitely have it. The sin, the pervasiveness of sin just doesn't go away. And so we discover something in these five chapters, what I call uh, the radicality of human fallenness. Uh, you know what radical means, the root going down right to the root, that we as human beings, when, when the first sin happened, and even still today, we have right to the very core of our being, the scar that runs down called sin. And it affects every single thing we do. Have you ever tried to do something good in an area of your life where you know you're weak and just failed over and over and over again. If you know what Paul feels when he says, the good I want to do, I cannot do. And the bad that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. You will understand the man who stands before Jesus and says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's that thing called sin that just is scarring us right to the root. It's almost as though everything we touch just gets damaged in some way. It's one of the things why I just uh, love about God and love to worship Him about is that He has made us, when we become Christians, new creations. He takes the old and He replaces it with the new. He, takes, he doesn't just stitch up that radical scar going through us. He removes it completely. And so the Bible calls us holy. We don't act holy, but we're called holy. And we're called perfect, even though we're not there yet. And so we wait for that day when we're going to be perfect in front of God's eyes. I can't wait for the day when temptation comes and it's not even an issue. In fact, even better, I can't wait for the day because the Bible tells us temptation will just be removed. I can't wait for that day. It's tough. It's really tough to walk around this evil, fallen, corrupt world and not see sin not see it everywhere you look and not be tempted by it. 
How do you avoid greed? We just put up a, a bird feeder in our new place that we just bought. And it was great. We, had, we, we, had, we bought the cardinal blend. So we have these beautiful cardinal birds flying down and eating. But you know what else comes? Chipmunks. We have this chipmunk. I must have scared him off 20 times in the space of 30 minutes. Uh, so you can imagine what a fool I look with. Open the door, run out. Chipmunk's faster than me. He gets away, close the door, come back, and he sticks his head around the corner. This chipmunk, chipmunk ate, I'm not lying, it's a bird feeder about this big. He ate half of it. His cheeks were so huge that the one time I chased him, he couldn't run anymore. He just kind of ran, sauntered, waddled, might be a better word, in a circle, just out of reach, and snuck away. And then his friend came, the squirrel. The squirrel that came and laid down our fence, stuck his hands out, grabbed the bird, the bird feeder, and fed himself all the way through it. I would chase him too. Can you, it's a little psycho in our house. I'm running out the door every five minutes. Our kid's screaming because he just turned one and teething. The, the squirrel runs across the top of the fence, ducks into the tree. I walk back inside and two, see just the squirrel head up from the other side of the fence. And he's watching us. <laughs> and then finally he pushes hard enough on the bird feeder that the bottom falls out and everything falls out. Bird feeder this size, emptied in one day. Ingrid filled it the next day. They knocked the bottom off in five minutes. So we've decided either we don't feed the birds or we succumb to the fact that we're feeding the birds and the squirrels and the chipmunks. We haven't decided yet which way we're going. But that is greed. Eating more than you can hold, grabbing everything you can, and I think we know people who do that. Grab everything they can get, get stuff themselves with anything that they can find, whether it be food, clothes, money, power, career advancement, you name it. Greed is everywhere. And so I just can't wait for the day that God removes that out of us, removes even the temptation from us. And so we do learn a little bit about sin. But we also learn about covenants. This is the second covenant given in the Bible. Uh, but it's the first time the word covenant is used. Uh, the second covenant, the first covenant really was with um, Adam and Eve uh, and the world, although it wasn't called a covenant, but this is the second one. But it's the first time the word covenant is used. And something about this covenant is that it's God making a promise. He comes and makes a promise, but it's not a mutual agreement covenant. It's not like me going to John and saying, hey, let's covenant together, David and Jonathan sort of deal. You know, we're going to make an equal covenant and work together. It's not that sort of covenant. This is a one-sided covenant. God comes with everything he's going to give you and everything he demands and says, here's my covenant. You either take it or leave it. If you take it, you get blessing. You leave it, you don't, really don't want to leave it. So God comes and makes this covenant and he details uh, for Noah and the rest of the, of the world what he will do for them, provide for them, save them from any future destruction of, of water, and he will be faithful to that promise in the creation of the rainbow. Uh, not the creation of the rainbow, the use of the rainbow as a symbol. So he promises what he will do, but then he also promises uh, what we should do for him. Worship him, obey him, and trust him. And that's what Noah needs to do. I mean, Noah comes out and to God. 
and gives him some uh, I, I did wonder what they meant by burnt offering though because the law hadn't been given yet so he obviously worshipped God in some way according to the custom that he had learnt but the closest thing was the burnt offering uh, that was described in the Levitical account so we learn a little bit about covenants but here's the big deal I want to focus some of our time. We learn about God through these five chapters. And we learn about the type of God we worship. Not the God of the Old Testament. Not the God of the past. Not the God who had some sort of awakening and changed his viewpoint. The same God yesterday, the same God today, the same God we'll serve in the future. This is the God we discover. So this is the type of God that we discover. We discover that God is one who is concerned about his creation, like a loving father. He looks at his creation and he sees sin everywhere, evil everywhere, and it hurts him. It grieves him. The one commentary talks about God in kind of an accountant format that he's bringing checks and balances. But I see it more as a father who has spent time and energy and money on his son or his daughter and grown them up, given them everything that they need, only to watch them leave and get decimated by silly decisions and by the world in which they live. And God looks at his creation and grieves. I can imagine God sitting there, uh, kind of the triune God, and, and going, why are you doing that? I created you for something better. What are you doing in that place, performing those acts, harming each other in that way? Why are you doing that? I have something better for you. And so he's concerned for his creation. That concern does have effects. It does come out that God needs to do certain things about that. But he but we need to remove this viewpoint of God in the Old Testament being a God who is waiting there with the biggest hammer on the planet, waiting to hit us the, uh, in, and the Israelites. Uh, one of my favorite cartoon characters, Gary Larson, does The Far Side. It's a picture of him, God at his computer. And there's the geekiest looking guy walking along the, path, the sidewalk. And right over his head is a, is a grand piano. And God, with his finger over the keyboard, with the word smite written on it. That is people's view of the God of the Old Testament. And that is not the viewpoint that we learn from Noah. We learn that here is a God who grieves, he cries over his creation when they perform evil and do these sort of sins. And he wants them to return to him. We learn about a God who is holy and cannot tolerate sin. How many people here saw the Passion of the Christ? I walked out of that movie, and while I was watching it, this phrase came through my mind. Because it, it's very powerful, obviously, and it impacts you in a great way. But I walked out going, if that's really what it was like, if that's what Jesus went through, how 
can I sin? It doesn't matter what sin it is. Any sin, put him through that. How can I watch that and not and never and come out there and sin again? Now I wish I could say that since that movie, me watching, I've never sinned, but I think I just did. So, but you get the viewpoint that God is holy and He cannot tolerate sin. He is so holy that He is willing to sacrifice His Son. He is willing to come Himself in the form of Jesus Christ and be sacrificed on our behalf because he wants us with him. There's that concern. He wants us with him, but his holiness cannot have sin in his presence because if sin enters God's presence, God ceases to be God. And so he is holy and cannot tolerate sin. But we also learn about a God who is just, and he will judge sin. And that's what the flood account is about. God is judging the sin of of this world at that time and saying, enough. No more. And God has done that throughout time. The Israelites, you sin and you sin, you worship other gods, you keep sacrificing idols to other people, and and eventually, enough. I'm bringing the Assyrians. You're going to do it again? I'm bringing the Babylonians. Oh, I will bring the, the, uh, the Alexandria Empire. And he will the Macedonian Empire, and he keeps doing it to get our attention. But he needs to judge sin. The good news for us, sitting this side of Jesus Christ instead of that side of Jesus Christ, is that we get to draw on Jesus Christ and what he has offered, and we see what was done to him in that movie, and in reality, and realize that our sin, the judgment for our sin, has been paid through Jesus Christ. One of the great things about Peter, the, uh, when he wrote 1 and 2 Peter, is he talks about how Jesus goes back and talks to those who were judged in the past, telling them about salvation. And so they, uh, uh, my hope and my belief is that they were given the opportunity to understand everything that God had, they had done for them. We also learn about a God who is faithful and remembers his followers. In that verse there, Genesis um, 8 verse 1, the flood has come, this rudderless barge has been picked up and has been floating around, rain has come for 40 days, uh, the water has risen for 150, covered the mountains, and through all, the whole account of that, which takes quite a while to write, you don't hear a mention of Noah. And then 8 verse 1, but God remembered Noah and his ark and his family and all the animals that were in the ark with him. God remembers his people. Have you ever felt like your life is like that ark? A float, and surrounding you is just troubled waters is the best way to describe it. That you are, the best way to describe it, you have just your nose sticking out of the water, breathing in, because life is just so tough and you've been inundated with so much trouble, whether it be trial or sin or heartache, you're just barely afloat. You need to remember that God is the one who is faithful, and he remembers you, even there. And if that means he needs to reach down with two fingers and hook you in the nose and pull you out of the water, he will do that, because he remembers you, and he wants you uh, to be safe and whole with him. We also remember through these chapters that God is one who is, who is caring 
and protects his followers. He protected Noah through all the building of the, of the ark, through getting in the water, through heading out, through the floating around, the coming to rest, and finally emerging from the ark. God cared for him and protected him all the way through that. It would have been easy uh, for that water, wherever it came from, to flood down and just crush that ark to pieces. But it didn't. God took care of it. You can imagine Noah going into the ark and looking back and going, that's a pretty big door. I wonder how I'm going to close it. And that's a pretty big hole for water to get into the ark. Not too keen about that. And then God closes the door. God says to Noah, you need to make this ark for all these animals. And then God brings the animals to Noah. Cares for him. He protects him. He helps him achieve what he has asked him to do. We also need to learn and we discover that God is one who is, who is, who is in control, who, who is caring, sorry, and provides for his followers. Provides what they need. Provided the safety for Noah, provides the, the, the right amount of animals for him, provides for his family. God is the one who cares and provides for his followers in that he did not destroy the entire race and the entire planet but he saved Noah because of his righteousness and kept him. God is one who cares for his nation Israel because through the nation of Israel, Adam, through Noah, to Abraham, God provided. And if you follow the account of gene, the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ, you see it there. So God cares for his followers and provides for them. We also discover that God is in control of the world. The whole account of Noah and the flood has actually very little to do with Noah. You ever notice something? Noah hardly ever speaks. He doesn't say anything. He, in, the word, in literature, he's like a flat character. Got no development whatsoever. There's, well, there's Noah. And Noah does what? Well, not much. God shuts the door. God sets the rain. God brings the animals. God brings the ark to rest. God tells Noah to send out doves, send out ravens. God, God, God. That's what we discover. God is in control of the whole process. He knows what's going on. And so we discover that God is, a, is one who is in control of the world. So it really doesn't matter what you're being flooded with right now. It really doesn't matter what's coming at you you need to remind yourself that God is the one who is in control of everything that's going on in your life. There might be lessons that he needs you to learn, and you might feel like you're being inundated and swallowed and crushed. But God doesn't want you to feel that way. He wants you to turn to him. Somebody said it this way once. God is so committed to your future and your future growth and development as his disciple that he will do anything to you and with to your surroundings to get your attention so that you would achieve his purposes. Anything. That's a little scary for me to contemplate. One of the ongoing arguments God and I have is about my wife. Simply stated, I do it this way. God, if you do anything to Ingrid, you and I have a little bit of a problem. I can take you on, God. I'm six foot four, 240 pounds. You get the the just how ludicrous that sort of argument is, but that's how I feel inside. God, you touch her, 
that's a problem. And I've had to, and, on, and keep having to give her up. Continually give her to God and realize, God, I don't want her to be an idol in my life, but it's tough. And God was gracious enough to bless me with another potential idol in my son. Where I'm going, you do anything to him. Well, not every day. Some days I look at him and go, God, you can do anything. <laughs> Remind yourself, no matter what's going on in your life, God is in control of what's going on and he wants your attention and he will do anything to get your attention. The last thing we learn about the, the, the God is that he is one who is faithful and remembers his promises. The rainbow. It's there to remind us that he'll never do it again. No matter how much it's been used in different circumstances today. But God remembers his promises and he remembers his covenant. And perhaps the greatest covenant he made was the one he made with himself through Jesus Christ and said, all men can be lifted up and come to me through him. And you can do that as well. I spoke about two different approaches in the beginning. And each of these approaches see people responding in a different way. You know, the humorous speculation approach would kind of have people responding with a carefree shrug. They might even come up to you and go, it's okay if you believe that about Noah. That's their sort of response. Just wipe it off. You're naive if you believe that. The approach of those who rigorously defend or deny, they might respond with just that sort of word, rigidity. I'm not changing my viewpoint. I don't care what archaeological evidence is out there, what science, I'm not changing. It's wrong or it's right. But there's a different approach. If we discover this sort of God, we have an approach that is a New Testament approach. That is an approach written about in Peter, where he goes back and he says, look at how God has worked in the past, how he saved righteous people through all sorts of acts of punishment, of uh, devastation, of judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah, um, you know, he lists them in 2 Peter 2. And then in 2 Peter 3, he says, if that is what happened to those people in the past, we have an important question to ask her, uh, answer. What sort of lives should we be living? And his answer is this, in 2 Peter 3 verse 11. In response, the correct response to the account of Noah and the flood and those five chapters, you ought to live holy and godly lives. We will have learnt the lessons that Noah brought us. Historical lessons, practical lessons, theological lessons. If we, tonight, leave here and commit ourselves to living godly and holy lives, that is the right response. So let's pray together. Father, it is hard in this world, in this town, to live holy, to live godly. In fact, it is even hard to get our hands and our heads around those two concepts. But Father, you call us to live those sorts of lives. You call us to be holy as you are holy. You call us to live such godly lives that others will look at us and see you. Father, doing that is going to be tough because we are still fallen inside even though we, we, we wait and we groan and we ask for you to reveal that eternal side that you have created in us. 
but we know that we're going to fail, Lord Jesus. We don't mean to, we don't want to, but we know we will fail. And we ask, Lord, that you would be the type of God we see uh, working with Noah, a God who is caring and God who is prepared to be faithful to his promises. And we know you're that sort of God to us. So, Father, we want to commit ourselves. We want to be holy. We want to be um, to be godly in, in the future. And we ask you to give us the strength to make the stands we need to stand. We need to make. We ask you to give us the the passion and the power, Lord Jesus, to stand up in areas where we are being pulled down, whether it be personally inside or in front of other other people. Father, we ask you to be there with us, standing with us, guiding us and helping us in those times. But when we fail, we also ask that you would be the compassionate God who would forgive us. And that you would, you would, Lord Jesus, you would use anything to get our attention if we drift from you. Father, thank you for this time we've had tonight. And I pray that you would, you would go with us as we move from here to whether it be discussions or, or heading home. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be mindful of who you are and what sort of God you are. In your name, amen. Thanks so much.